the podcast of the Doral Vineyard Church. This is a message by Denver Lee. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you have your Bibles with you today. I'm going to um, share a, a lot of scriptures out of the Bible today. My, my original intention was to share a little bit um, about just uh, contextually, doctrinally, theologically on some things about love and Greek, Hebrew, all kinds of fun stuff that you all, all probably already know and can find on YouTube if you don't know it yet. And, um, and I find that anytime I, I listen to the Lord in a topic to share on my week is normally filled with that very thing. And so that's why I don't preach on patience. Um, because cause whatever it is, I, I seem to set up to prepare for. Like the Lord just always does this thing like every day on, on a really heavy scale throughout the entire week. And this, this week has been one that I have learned uh, about love in some ways that, um, that, I, I, that I, I've, I've, I've just never known that I've never really experienced. And, and, and that's not really the kind of thing that you celebrate. Like, I, I know so much about love, but it's, it's more the, the kind of thing where you're put in challenging situations and you get to choose love. You know, you guys understand that? Like, love is a choice, you know? Um, I, I, I like to explain that love is a choice more than it is a feeling. Um, and, and the reason why commitment in love is so great is because the person who loves you, you know, if you're, if you're married or what, whatever the context of love is that's greatest in, in your life, the great thing about it is that this person is not just stuck with you, is that they've chosen you, right? Um, and, and it's that love sets itself up and, and there's an option and you choose something. One of the hardest theological things I found in, in my life when I came to Christ was understanding that God placed two trees in the garden. And it always bothered me that there were two trees in the garden because I, I just want one tree in my life. I, I just want the one tree that you want me to eat off of, right? Um, how many people are just like, Lord, just show me what to do, show me where to go, and make my mind just go in that direction so I don't have to, you know, I don't want to have to struggle. I don't want to have to have the pull. But the beauty of love comes when you have another option and you choose the option that you committed to. Like that's, 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 where, that's where love comes in, you know? Um, so so for, for married couples, love is not just you and your significant other stuck on an island together. Love is like there's a bunch of other options around you every single day and it doesn't escape and you get to choose your wife every single day. You get to choose your husband every single day. Every situation is, is, is that choice. You constantly choose that individual. And then you have this God-man who comes and he sits in a garden and says, if there's another way to escape this, he says, I could have called a legion of angels to come and bail me out of this, that I can get down off this, this cross. I, I, I can just ascend back into heaven. I, I can go. But he chooses us and he chooses you. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that while we, we were your sinner, Christ died for us. And then Jesus says, no man takes my life, but I give it willingly. And it's always about that choice, you know. So, so this, this week has been one of, of, of a lot of really difficult choices. And, and I, I originally had um, to, to share, like I said, more theologically about love and, 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 and how to make these better choices and whatnot. But what I want to talk about is the foundation of love. I want to talk about the foundation of love and, and not so much how to 
situationally do the things of love, but I want to look at the basis of which we grow in love. So in the Christian life, I find that there are two kinds of knowledge. Um, every single person in this, in, the, in this room has two kinds of knowledge. There's the kind of knowledge that someone preaches a sermon and you amen and you clap and you yay and you highlight and you take the notes and you could preach it, you could tell it back, you correct other people in it. And then there's the kind of no that's like deep down inside where like it produces a behavior, it produces a lifestyle, it produces a mindset, it produces an attitude and you may never preach it. You probably were never taught it, but it's just something that grew inside of you and it became who you are. And you just know, you just, you start to change, right? And so it's, it's not the head knowledge, it's the heart knowledge. And when we talk about love, many people have the head knowledge of love, you know? And, and oftentimes when I talk about the love of God and, and Christian love and, and the agape and, and, and loving the lost and loving the broken and, and loving the wounded and loving your enemies, everyone would say, yes, Jesus, and amen. But then situations come up and we don't love our enemies and we don't love the lost and we don't love the wounded and we don't love the broken and we have head knowledge and we're satisfied with head knowledge when the Lord Jesus didn't die to give you head knowledge. He died to give you heart knowledge because heart knowledge is what transforms. Because one day all this is going to fade away and all that's going to remain is what, whatever your heart learned. Whatever your heart learned is what's going to remain. And, and so my, my prayer for us, especially during these next five weeks, is that we don't just get satisfied and pacified with head knowledge, that we're not just satisfied with the fact that I know something. And I don't want to share with you things that I know. And th there's a lot of stuff that I, I can teach about love that I know. But what I want to invite you into is, is the way to have the experience that changes you. Because if you just know the stuff... We will have a church of great knowers. And we're not looking for a church of great knowers. We're looking for a church of, of people who have experienced something and out of that experience birth more experiences. Right? And, and so as I talk about this today, it might be a lot of stuff that you already know, but I'm talking about a deeper knowledge. I'm, I'm, ta I'm talking about when you're faced with certain situations, do you love? I say this because I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of Christians, and I get the, op the, the opportunity, especially nowadays, to spend a lot of time with Christians. This is the most time I've spent with Christians in my whole Christian life, ever, ever. Um, I've, I've, I have never been around this many Christians for this long, um, and, and it's challenging. You guys know it's challenging to, to be around Christians. I know it sounds bad. You guys are like Denville. You guys are like Denville. <laughs> Pastor of church, man. It's challenging to, to, to be around Christians. In fact, most of the epistles are not about you loving other people. It's about you loving each other. When, when Paul wrote to Corinth, it was about you loving each other. When he wrote to, to Rome, a lot of it was about loving each other. And, and some of the scriptures we're going to read today out of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, all that was about loving each other. None of that was about loving people on the outside. It was all about loving people on the inside. Before Jesus went to the, to the cross, he prayed, y'all need to love each other. Because if you all don't love each other, then the love that he died for is never going to go global. 
And I find that Christians being around other Christians is always a really difficult place for for love to really permeate. I feel like this is one of the greatest oppositions that we have. And I'm not just talking about Christians outside of your home even. I'm talking about Christians within your family, uh, Christians who live in your own household. And... That's where I want to go today. So I want to start off. Um, I'm just I'm just going to give a lot of verses. You guys have some places there to take notes, um, and and please uh, take as many notes as you possibly can. There's a little section I wrote there about love and how popular love is in our culture, um, and and you know you guys remember the whole thing of love wins and 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 all that kind of good stuff. And everyone has this idea about love that's passive. That is that's that's this idea of of love that's non-offense. This idea of love that's just a feeling that you feel one day. Um, and I want to talk about perhaps a much greater love than that. And, and um, if, if it challenges you too much, then I think we're doing a good job. If it challenges you very little, then I think we're not doing such a good job. Let's turn to Matthew 5, and we'll start there. Let me turn to Ma- Matthew 5, verse 43. I'm just going to talk about some things that, that Jesus did, and then we're going to look in the epistles of John and, and look at what John did, and then we're going to talk about how we can attain that kind of love. And then we're going to pray and eat. Let's have a John 5, verse 43. So this is Jesus talking. This is the Beatitudes. I always talk about the Beatitudes. Um, read, read, the, read the Beatitudes at least once a week. Um, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At least once a week, just read it. If, if, you, if you can't read it, there's a Bible app. You can pick it. Just push play and just listen to it. Right? It's, this, is, this, is, this is stuff that I, I believe that there are just certain portions of Scripture that we just need to dive into every single time because you will never get bored with this. You will never check off everything on this list, if you would. Matthew 5, verse 43. In his discourse, Jesus reads, You have heard that it was said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rains on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. It says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so, so, so Jesus, in, in, in teaching, he elevates the expectation of love, and he says to love your enemies. Like, to love your enemies. I've shared that a lot um, over the past few months, and, and I always get the question of how am I supposed to love my enemies? And many people have heard love your enemies before. And when they hear love your enemies, the, the teaching that comes behind it is, is normally some practical things to do. Like, well, we'll call them once a week, you know, or, or send them a letter every now and again, you know, like, or to do this or to, to do that and some practical things on, on how to love. And, and I just believe that there's a better way how we can love our enemies. And, and that's what I want to get to. Let's turn to, to Matthew 22. So I'm just going to quickly go through these verses and just, just highlight them or write, write them down. And at the end of the message, it'll make sense. Then you probably go back and read it and it'll make more sense. Matthew 22, verse 34. Yes. 
And so the Sadducees and Pharisees were coming to Jesus, and they're asking him all kinds of uh, all kinds of challenging questions, and they're questioning his authority pretty much, right? So Jesus comes and he's doing all these amazing things, right? All right, so pay, pay attention to this portion before I, I read this. They're challenging Jesus' authority on every single matter because Jesus starts to raise the dead. He starts to heal the sick. He does things on the Sabbath, and he's kind of changing the rules a little bit. So Jesus comes, and he's changing the, the rules, and the religious leaders are saying, what authority do you have to change the rules? Now, the authority of Jesus is being questioned here. What authority do you have to change the, the rules? And the authority of Jesus is, is always what's on trial. Many times it's, it, it, it's not even the existence of Jesus in history that's on trial because we've already accomplished that. He, he, he existed. Many times it's not even the deity. That's either you have the revelation or you don't. But some of the stuff that he says is what authority does he have to say these things to you? What is his authority? Does he have the authority in your life to tell you these things? And this was the problem with, with the Sadducees and Pharisees because Jesus was a rabbi. He was teaching in the temple, and he was saying that he had authority to do things and to say things. He had authority in your life. And with that authority, he's giving you new instructions on how you should live. And so the Sadducees and Pharisees start to test his authority, and they're questioning, what do you say? Because if your authority goes against God, then we know that you're not from God. And Jesus' authority to say the things that he's saying is what's on trial here, okay? So verse 34, on hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees came together. One of them, who was an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's, and he's reading here out of Leviticus. And, and in Leviticus, what he says is, it, it, it begins with saying, the Lord your God is one. And then, and then God, God's given them some instructions on how to live here. Verse 39, the second is just like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. All the laws and all the prophets hangs on these two commandments. All right, so again, Jesus is, is, is saying everything, my, my authority and my teaching and all of that, it, it, it's all hung on this this basic idea to love the Lord your God and the second is just like it to love your neighbors as yourself. Now what I want you to take note of is that as Jesus is teaching this in Matthew 5 he's given the Sermon on the Mount and, and he, he's, he's upgrading the authority of scripture and, and he's, he's given them of greater understanding and a deeper depth as to what God is doing in their lives and in the earth and he's given them something a little bit more difficult for them to live by. Right? Because he says, love your enemies. He says, you've heard it say that you should love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I'm telling you now that you should love your enemies, right? And, and he's taking it a step further. And as he's doing this, as he's speaking, his disciples are with him. So his disciples are hearing this and, and they're learning it and, and they're being taught. Jesus didn't just teach these things once and for all. As he went all throughout Judea and all throughout Galilee he's, he, to, to these different towns, he's continually teaching these kinds of things. So he, he's doing all these miracles and he's producing all these teachings and he's doing miracles to solidify the teaching that he just taught. So, so if, you know, like when I was in Africa, I remember um, I, we were praying for this woman who... 
um, she they brought her from one of the towns and she wasn't a believer and she 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 had um um a tumor. She had a, a, a stomach tumor. She like she was pregnant. She she was like 60, 60 something years old, and and I I remember sharing with with her that if if I if I pray in the name of Jesus and I make a declaration that Jesus Christ is going to heal you, and then I pray for you and you get healed, then you have to believe that it's Jesus that healed you, right? So I'm going to pray for you in the name of Jesus, and then you're going to get healed. And, and, and so I'm, I'm giving you words and I'm giving you ideas and I'm giving you thoughts, but then something is going to happen physically to prove and solidify the message that I just gave. So, so that's why the preaching of the gospel is always followed by signs, wonders, and miracles, because there's a stamp of approval and, and, and there's, a, there's just a greater authority that's, that's given. It's that the message that I just gave you, it's not just something for you to believe, but it comes with a power behind it to actually transform you into that thing, right? So that's why signs and wonders and miracles and all those things are absolutely necessary with the preaching of the gospel because it is the power of God and they come hand in hand to help us to understand that he has authority, not just in the spirit world, but he also has authority in this physical world. And so whatever he says is the rule and the authority for our lives, right? So, so, so as, as, as Jesus is teaching, as he's going through, his disciples are with him. Just stay with me. And ah, you wonder where, where's this going, right? So they're, they're traveling together, and Jesus is, is continually giving these teachings. Go to John 13. Again, just uh, highlight some of these verses, and you could read them later, and it'll probably fit more by the end. John 13, I'm going to start from um, verse 33. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. And then in verse 34, he says, A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, so Jesus first starts off and he says that you've heard it said that you should love your neighbors. You guys follow track. You should, you should love those who love you should love your neighbors and that you should hate your enemies. He says, but I'm changing that and now I'm telling you that you should love your enemies. You should love your enemies. And he, and he goes forward another time and he says, you should, you should love others the way that you love yourself. Right? You guys remember that? He's, he's, he's teaching, I, I think it's in Luke, he explains, you should love others the way that you love yourself. But here in, in John, he, he gives something quite different. He says, a new command I give to you that you should love one another as I have loved you. And so this kind of love, he's not saying to love the way that you love. He's not even saying to say that, to love, he's saying to love the way that he loves. He says, you ought to love one another, not as you love yourself, but as the way that he has loved you. You guys follow me here? And so, and I, I always wondered about why, because this is at the end, Jesus is about to go to the cross here. And I always held these things in tension because it seems like the closer he gets to the cross, the harder these commands become. So he starts off at the beginning in the, in the Beatitudes. Okay, first it was hate your enemies, but I'm just saying you should love your enemies. And he says, all right, now you should love one another. Love your neighbors and love God, right? Says, this is the rule. He says, love each other as you love yourself. And right before he gets to the cross, he says, all right, now scratch all that. Love each other the way that I've loved you. Not, not the way that you loved in the past, but you should now love each other the way that I have loved you. Let's go to John 15, just a page over or two. 
Start from verse 9. This is Jesus continually talking to his disciples. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. Come on, he's told you this so that his joy might be in you and that your joy may, may be complete. So those are two separate things he's saying. I'm, I'm giving you these, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that you should follow these commands I'm giving you so that you would have joy. You guys follow me here? It says, it says, I'm giving you these commands so that his joy will be in you and, and that your joy would be complete. And then he says, now this is the command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than to lay down his life for his, one's friends. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And I just want to maybe just take a stab at it and say that your joy will never be complete unless his joy is in you. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that your joy will never be complete unless his joy is in you. All right? That's all that you will never be joyful if God's joy is not in you. You, you can have pieces of happiness, but you will never have joy unless his joy is in you. And then he says, all right, in, in order to have that, you must follow this command. Love one another as I have loved you. That's how his joy is going to get in you, and that's how your joy is going to be complete. All right. First John 1. We're almost there. I like to give some scriptural context before I just start talking, because sometimes I, I say things, and people are like, it's... Where's that in the Bible? So I'm giving you all the places where, where, it's, where it's at in the, in the Bible, and then I'll just want to share from my heart a little bit. So, so now this is, the, this is the disciple John. You remember saying John is one who was at the Beatitudes where Jesus says, you should love your enemies. Right? Now, when Jesus says to love your enemies, you've got to understand that he's talking about the Jewish people the Hebrew people. He's talking about people who've been ostracized, people who've been pushed out. He's telling them that they should love the Romans. You remember when one of the, the challenges, they, they brought him, you remember I was saying that they were challenging his authority. They brought him a coin and says, says should we pay taxes to, to Caesar because the Roman government was against them? Just saying, you should love your enemies. So, so John is there, right? And John is like a fisherman, and John makes very little money. And John would, would perhaps have been robbed by tax collectors 10 times over, right? Um, for, for those of you who don't know, tax collectors, what would typically happen is that when Rome um, took in the Jews and, and gave them a community, what would happen is they would elect some of their Jewish people to collect taxes for Rome, right? So Rome would auction off little portions of Rome, and then Roman citizens would own the territory where the Jewish people live. And then these, these wealthy Roman citizens would then hire a Jewish person such as Matthew, and then they would give Matthew the authority and say, now you go and, and collect taxes from your brothers and sisters, the Jewish people, then bring it back to me, and I'm going to give you a cut. So that's why when you read through the Gospels, and it says um, there were sinners and tax collectors because tax collectors were working for Rome. 
And, and so they were like little traders within the community. And then what would happen is, so Rome would say, we want $20 for tax, and then they would give it to that citizen to own that territory. And then that citizen would say, all right, $25, because I'm going to get my cut too, right? So now it's going to be $25. So Matthew, go and collect $25, and then he's going to get the $25. He's going to give 20 to Rome, 20 to Caesar, and then he's going to keep five. But then Matthew would probably say, $30 tax, because I'm going to get my five then he's going to get his five, and then Caesar's going to get 20. So that's why Matthew would have been one who is considered an enemy. Jesus brings these people together and says, love your enemies. John was a poor fisherman, and he had to pay taxes, right? So, so when John gets called to be a disciple, and Jesus starts to tell him different ways of how he ought to live, this is really challenging because, because John and Peter and all these guys, they live under oppression, and they were waiting for a Messiah who would come to overthrow the Roman Empire, right? By the end of this series, um, what I'm going to eventually get to is how the Roman Empire was actually conquered, they expected Jesus to conquer the Roman Empire by coming on a white horse and cutting off the head of Caesar. That's what they expected. They expected the overthrow of Rome, and Jesus did not do that. In fact, he came in on, on a little donkey, and he was poor, and he didn't have much, and he was a disappointment. Jesus was a disappointment to everyone who was expecting him to come in and overthrow the government that was oppressing them. And then even worse, when he came, he started to say, respect the government, honor the government, pay taxes to the government. And he says, love the government. And they're like, you were supposed to overthrow these guys and you're telling us to love them. How are we ever going to conquer Rome? But Rome does get conquered. And if you don't come at the end of the series, Rome gets conquered by love. If you look at it historically, and we're going to look at some of the historical context of how Rome was, was conquered, Rome was not conquered by, by men who were great warriors. Rome was conquered by people who were great lovers. It's like, well, how does, I don't remember reading that in history. In the book of Acts, the book of Acts is, is, is how Rome was conquered. All right, we'll get there. You got you to gotta come back for the rest of the series. All right, so John, John, John 1. So this is the same John who was with Jesus, right? He's with Jesus when, when he said to love your enemies. He's with Jesus when he says to love those who hate you. He's with Jesus when he says to love others as you love yourself. And he was with Jesus when Jesus said you should love others as I loved you. And now John is, is writing his epistle here in 1 John. And then John begins to write to us, the church, the believers. And he says that which we have heard from the beginning, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and, and touched. He's saying, this is, we're giving you what we, we sat with Jesus. John is saying, I was with Jesus. I saw him with my eyes, touched him with my hands. I heard him with my ears. Like I, I laid on his chest. I was with him. I, I was with Jesus. I, I heard his teaching. And I, I, I love to read what John has to say because John just doesn't reiterate what Jesus says. I believe that, that John would have taken some of the things in the secret place that he learned from, from Jesus and extrapolated them and explained them and, and, and gave us more insight and context towards what Jesus was saying. So Jesus says to love your enemies. But, but, but John says, yeah, he said love your enemies. But he taught us so much more than that. He taught us so much more than that. And so Matthew just said, Jesus says to love your enemies. And, and all you got was just the law. But I was with him. 
and, and he taught us some things and he showed us some things. So I'm going to give you that which from the beginning we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, which we've touched with our hands. This we proclaim concerning the words of, of life. First John uh, chapter 1, verse 2. The life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard and so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write to make our joy complete. It says, we write to make our joy complete. You remember what Jesus says? That your joy is complete. Right? Let's, let's go back to that in uh, John 15. I, I just want to give you a little parallel to, to what uh, 1 John is talking about here. Because John is, is going to explain what Jesus told him in John uh, 15. Is it 15 or 16? 15. Right? Um, John 15, verse 11 he says, I've, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And then John says, we write, so that our, we write this to make our joy complete. So John is, John is bringing forth the very thing that, that Jesus says, your joy will be complete if you do what I tell you to do because my joy is going to be in you and then your joy is going to be complete. And he says to love one another. Do you know that this first John obviously is all about love? That's what John writes about. John says, your joy is about to be complete, and I'm going to tell you about this thing in love. All right. Let's go to uh, 1 John chapter 3. In verse 2, so this is John. He's saying that what, what we saw what we heard, what we touched, this is what we're about to give to you. We're, we're going to give you not just the words of Jesus, but I'm trying to give you the heart of Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to, to give you something that just, that surpasses what you understand theologically, but I'm trying to give you the, the I'm, tr- I'm trying to give you the essence of everything here, right? Chap- chapter three, verse two, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3 says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Verse 4, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawless. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Let's go to uh, verse 11. Now it says, For the message that you heard from the beginning, this is the message we heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Right? So now he's, he's going to explain, this is the message that we heard from the beginning, that we ought to love one another. He says, Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his, his brother? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. We should highlight that in verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. This is, this is how you know. I always have people, like, how, how do I know if, if I've been saved? John says, well, we, we know that we've passed from death to life because 
we love one another. This is, this is, this is how you know. This is the evidence. The evidence of your salvation is love. The evidence of your salvation is love. There's, there's no such thing as a hateful Christian. They're saying, Denville, are you saying, are you trying to say who's saved and who's not saved? Yes. I'm saying that you were saved by love. And those fingerprints should be on you. I worked crime scene for many years. And as a crime scene investigator, I used to investigate burglary crime scenes. I used to go into houses where people were burglarized and I used to dust for fingerprints and search for blood and DNA and all kinds of good stuff to find out who broke into the home. Do you, do, you, do you know that if your fingerprints or your DNA or anything was in a place where you didn't belong, like if you've never been to this house, this family doesn't know you, and for some reason your fingerprints are on the broken glass and your blood is on the inside and strands of your hair is on the bed where, where jewelry was taken, do you know that you get a conviction? Not because I saw you, but because I found the evidence. I don't have to see you break into the house. But there's, but there's evidence on the scene. And evidence on the scene leads to a conviction. Follow me? John says, we know that we have passed from, from death to life because we love each other. Do I believe that it's possible for someone to be a hateful Christian? I do not believe so. Because I cannot wrongly convict you. If you have no love in you and I call you a Christian, I'm convicting you wrongly. Because I found no fingerprints, there, is, there are no traces of blood, there is no hair on the scene, there is no love in you, then you probably weren't saved by love. If Jesus came and snatched you out of darkness and brought you into light, his fingerprints ought to be all over you. If he really grabbed you. This is the fruit. This is, this is, this is, this is what Paul talks about. He says, this is why you ought to prefer love. This is why love is the great. This is why, because love is the fruit of the spirit. Those are all the same things of love. Because if you don't have love, then you have nothing. It gets worse. Verse 15, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so how do we get this love? How, how do we come to a place where we love like Jesus loves? How, how do we begin to love like Jesus loves? I, I, I think that this is, if, if, if I'm just completely honest, this is one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life, loving like Jesus loved. This is the greatest struggle in my life. My wife and I do, do, do a lot of counseling. We get to, to meet a lot of people, not just church people, but, but friends and family and, and coworkers. And I have yet, in, for, for years, I sat with, I, I worked as a police officer for 10 years. I went to people's homes when everything was wrong. People only call the police when things are going terrible, terrible wrong. Either someone died, someone's dying, or someone's about to die, right? It, it's always terrible. Or someone's about to kill me. I'm about to get beat. It, 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 almost every other call was a domestic call. There was always something going on in the home. My child is out of control. My wife is doing this. My husband locked me out. He hit me. She did this. It, every single issue, and they say, oh, well, it's because of financial situations. It's because she lost her job. It's because of every problem that I have ever encountered 
whether it's as a police officer, whether it's as a detective. I sat with people who, who, who committed robberies, burglary, every single person I've ever met, even as a pastor, every single problem always comes back to a love problem. Every single problem that you have comes back to a love problem. Every single problem that I've ever had, if, <laughs> once I stop blaming everyone else and everything else, it comes back to a love problem. Every single one of them. I, I, I think sometimes this is the core of what Jesus gets to because Je- this, is why, this is why Scripture says things like, love not your life. You thought you had a money problem. You don't have a money problem. Love not your life. Even unto death. So you, so you don't have a money problem. You have a love problem. You love the wrong stuff. You love the wrong things. This is why the issue of, of, of love is of such great importance. Just, just think about some of the greatest complications in your life today. They all stem from love find it difficult to trust God in certain areas. That's a love issue. Love the Lord your God. It's all a love issue. Fear, perfect love, cast out fear. You have a love issue. No matter what your fear is, your, your, fear, of, your fear of death, your fear of dying alone, your, your, your fear of losing something, whatever your fear is, per- perfect love is, the, is, is a solution for fear. And I think that all of this is the love problem. Go to Genesis 2.18. I want to talk about how, how we can attain this love that Jesus talks about. How can we really love our enemies? I think this is like the greatest thing that you could ever do. Let me tell you why. So I'm, I, I've been training to run this half marathon, right? And as I'm training to run this half marathon, I'm learning that I have to travel further than the half marathon distance so that I can run the half marathon comfortably, right? So right now, the, the half marathon, Jamie, is, is how much? 13.1, right? So I got to do, thir- I'm, I'm not at 13 yet, so I never got to worry about that, that number right now, right? So thir- I, I know I got to get to like 12 or 13 miles. Right, right now I'm at 10, right? So I know that, if I just get to 10, I'm probably going to have a hard time getting to 13. If I just get to 13 and I don't do the 13.1, I, I might have a hard time doing that point one. If I run 15, I can go to a half marathon confident with my shirt and with my new shoes and won't be embarrassed. If I can run 20, that 13.1... <laughs> with, with my headphones and everything. If I could run 30 or 40, I'll do, it with a, I'll do it with a bottle of Coke because it's that much easier. Loving your enemies is like this 30-mile stretch. If you can love those who hate you, those who persecute you, those who despite you, if you can love the people who have stuff against you, whether they're your family, who, whoever it is, whether, if you can love these people, the rest of this stuff, it's going to be so much easier for you. If you can love those who hate you, this is, this is why Jesus challenges you to climb higher, to, to go further, because if you can love those people, you will not have a problem giving that cashier a prophetic word. You will have no problem praying for the sick person. You will have no, you will have no issues with any of those things that convict us as Christians in carrying out the mission of Christ as we're called to. 
but we're still struggling with like the 10 mile and we're training for the 13 mile, but you've got to go the 30. You've got to go the 40. You've got to love your enemies. So how do we do that? When you go to um, Genesis 2, Genesis 2 verse 18. Is it really? Okay. In Genesis 2, 2, 2, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So it says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. So this is Adam. Adam is made in the garden. Adam is by himself. And God comes to a conclusion that Adam needs a helper. And the scripture starts to tell us why God came to the conclusion that Adam needs a helper. This is now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. All right, so God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Here's, here's how I know it. I gave him all the animals and I told him to name all these animals. And, and so Adam would go out and he would see all the animals. I love to, to share this at weddings because this is, this is the picture and the context of which we get the ideas of love that we come to understand. So Adam goes and he names the livestock, he names the birds, and he names all the, the wild animals. And then at the end of verse 20, it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So God said, I'm going to make you a helper. And then God gave him all these animals and he sent him out there. And then Adam named them and came back and was like, I still haven't found a helper that was suitable for me. I always ask the question, what did Adam need help with? Right? Because Adam was in Eden. If, if, if Adam is in Eden and, and, and he's looking for help, what kind of help does he get? Now, be careful with the kind of help you say because God gives him a woman to answer the problem. And, and so, <laughs> and be careful what you say about that because then God gave the Holy Spirit and called him a helper and it's the same context as the woman. All right. So, so, so don't go bad theology. Don't, don't go bad theology yet, Right? So for Adam was, was found no suitable help. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one rib uh, out of him. He closed it up. And, the, and verse 22, the, the Lord God made a woman from the rib. Adam found out that he had a love problem. Adam went out and he saw animals. He perhaps would have seen because, because creation had already happened. And so these animals were out there and he's naming these animals. And he sees giraffe with giraffe. You know, he sees, he sees the oxen with the oxen. And, and he's looking for a helper for him. But no one's helping him because they're helping each other. Because the giraffe is with the giraffe. I'm like, well, who's going to help me? Or the ox is with the ox. Who's going to help Adam? The birds of the sky. No one is, there's none that really compliments Adam. And one of the things that Adam finds out, even though Adam was in the garden with God, he was still missing something. Now you guys say, well, he was in Eden. Aren't we all trying to go back to Eden? No, we're not all trying to go back to Eden. Some people are still trying to go back to Eden. I don't want to go back to Eden because I was promised something better than Eden. Because Adam still had a problem in Eden. Even when he got to Eden and God was with him, God knew him, God was with Adam, and Adam still lacked. <laughs> that, 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 that doesn't sound right. All right, so Adam still lacked, and then God says he's going to give Adam this woman. Adam, had, Adam perhaps would have recognized that he has the capacity for love. He has the capacity for love, and he has the necessity to give love. So he has the capacity to receive love, and he has the necessity to give love. And, and this is true for Adam, and this is true for every single person in this room. You have the capacity to receive love, and you have the necessity to give love. 
And this is why we run into all kinds of problems, because either something's wrong with the capacity or something is wrong with the necessity. But but there's a problem on one end or the other when it comes to the issue of love. So Adam was made in God's image and in God's likeness. So he was made to be like God, right? And as he was made to be like God, he, 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 he still was not in this perfect state because God pulled something from him to give him better complementary, and that was the woman who he was to love. And you all know the story. Eve came, and he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Whoa, man, this is her. And he loved her for this reason. I'm going to give up everything and be with this person, and we understand love from, from that context. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you all for being so patient as I take this long trail here. 1 Corinthians 13. So this is the chapter about love that everyone likes. When, when we read it at, um, at weddings, I never understood that. When we read at, at, at weddings, we stop at love never fails, and we don't talk about prophecy. It's like, but where there's prophecy, all prophecy will cease in tongues. Like, I never hear people read those parts at the weddings. Whatever, it's weird. Um, so it says, if, if I speak in tongues of men of angels, and, and, and he goes on to talk about if, if you can do all these wonderful things on the earth and you don't have love, then you can't really do anything. Right? Um, if, if, you, if you have all the greatness of God and, and you have all the skills that you're acquiring, if, if you get all the money that you're trying to work for, if you get all the recognition that you're dying for, if all the problems that you're looking for to go away, if all those problems go away, think of all those problems that you wish will go away. Most of them are probably people. They're not going to go away. And if they go away, God's going to send you like 10 more because that's not the problem he's trying to fix, Right? I, f- I find that when God gives you a people problem, he's trying to fix one person, and that's you. And, y- and your people problem are fixed when, the- when one person is fixed. It just makes so much sense f- for God to fix me than to fix all of you. I used to pray to God, would you fix this congregation? Lord? No. <laughs> but, but it's so much easier for God to, to fix me. I'll tell you why in a little. At the, at the end of this chapter on love, where Paul talks about it's better to love than to do anything else, in verse 12, Paul says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then, we'll sh- then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall be known fully, even as I am known. Um, keep your finger there, and then go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we read from this last week. So, so, so last week was like this preparation for this message. And, and last week we talked about how with the law and that when the, when, when the law is read, the, the veil comes, and, and, but, but Jesus comes and he peels the veil back and, and we see him face to face. Um, in, in verse 17, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, now where the Lord is, now the Lord is spirit, and where the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see only our reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall be known fully even as I am known. 
to, to, to know fully and to be known, that's a portion of the capacity to receive and the, the necessity to give, right? So he says, I, I, I will know and I will be known, right? That's the whole thing of love is to know and to be known, is, is, is to give and to receive. It, it is to have the necessity to give and to have the capacity to receive. And then Paul writes again to the church in Corinth. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. And, and then lastly, 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 2. He says, dear friends, we're children of God and what we will be had not been made known to us yet. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What is my point here? He's saying that transformation is what happens. All those verses are about transformation. If you, if you keep them, they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're, they're not about learning. They're about transformation. How, how do I be transformed into, into the type of person who can love like Jesus loved? Jesus calls you to love like he loves. That changes the game completely. Because we can no longer have ideas as to what love is. His authority was questioned, and he proved his authority to define love. Jesus proved his authority to define love, and he says, I'm going to define love for you, but once I define it, you can define it by no other measure. So Jesus has defined love for you. Yes? And this is love. He, he says, greater love is no man than will lay down his life for his friend. Paul writes in, to the Roman church, he, he, he says, God has proven his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus has the authority to define love, and he has defined it for you. And not only has he defined it for you, he has now given you an instruction, and he says, this is how you ought to love. Anything else that doesn't look like this, you have not met the, the measure of love, and you have redefined, and you have re. Many, many, many Americans, I, I remember last, last year, this whole love wins thing, one of the biggest things that the church was doing was saying that the American government is trying to redefine love. And my only problem with that, and many people were, you know, pastor, you got to say something about this. It's like, I don't think you want me to say anything about this because the thing that I would say about it is probably not what you think because I think that we've already redefined love. We've already redefined love to something less than dying. We've already redefined love to, to, to something less than self-sacrifice. Then greater love is no man than to lay down his life for his friends. God demonstrated love in that while you were sinners, while you were an enemy of God, Colossians says, you were an enemy of God and, and, and God stretched out and died for you and proved to you what love is. And on the back of that, he says, now go and love is that how we define it? Because if that's not the definition, not in your mind, if that's not the, the definition in your heart and in your lifestyle, then you've already redefined love. The homosexual community didn't do that. You did. I did. Congress didn't do that. We did. We redefined love. Because we started to redefine love when we said, you have a problem? Like you run. Someone bothers you, you get online and you type the heck out of whatever you need to on their Facebook and, and you tell all your friends whatever you got to and you gossip about them and you slander them. And at worst, you just avoid them. 
but you never die for them, but you never lay down for them. Love was already redefined. And so I can't be mad when, when Congress just kind of finishes what we started because Jesus already gave us a definition for love. And when Jesus gives us a definition for love and Congress changes the definition for love, our job is to still love them. Because if we follow suit, then we just propagate the redefinition of this love that Jesus made very clear to us. Someone hates you and you hate them back, they redefine it, and then you took that redefinition and you redefined that redefinition. This is why Jesus talks about, you got to read the Beatitudes. You, you got you to read, yeah, I'm going to do it again. You, you, you got you to read this, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is what Jesus is talking about. You've, you've heard it said long ago that you shall not murder, but, 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 but anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that if you're angry with your brother or sister, murder already. He already is given definition. He's made it extremely clear. And I think one of the issues is that we've decided that this is a, a, this, this is a parabolic kind of language, that it's a parable, or, or that it's some, some kind of word picture that Jesus wasn't, you know, these aren't real things, these are just ideas, that Jesus don't really do these things. He's just, you know, he's using hard language to make a strong point. Jesus is not using hard language to make a strong point. Jesus' death was not a hard language to prove a strong point. It was something that was happening for real because your sins are real, my sins are real, and they deserve a real death, and he had to die a real death. He gave real instructions, love your enemies. That's not a word picture for us. That's a real thing that you can do. You can really love your enemy. You can really lay down and die in the way that Jesus calls us to. One of the routes to that is humility. I, I, I think that I, I, as we were worshiping this, this, this morning, I just felt, I kept telling the Lord that I don't want to skip the class. Because I, I feel like he keeps, you know, many people, many people are worried about the test. Like, God is testing me. There's a class before the test. There's a class before the test. And so if you wake up one day and you realize I'm being tested by God, if you wake up and you realize you're being tested by God and you feel like you're unprepared for the way that God is testing you, it means that you fell asleep in the class because he taught you before he tested you. He instructed you before he tested you. He put you in positions to, to instruct your heart. He put you in some ways for you to make some decisions that you would learn and then you would make the right. So when the test comes, that you would pass it. When he was tempted, he was tempted in the garden by the enemy because the test was going to come in Gethsemane. Right? And then when the real test came, he was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. I took the class in the garden. I took the class in the garden already so I can pass the test in Gethsemane. You're given a class before you're tested. God just doesn't, te- that, that would not be fair. If your students came home and said, the teacher just gave us a test and we all failed and now we got to be held back a grade and they never taught this class, you would go down there and kick down a few doors and stop a few, a few people because that's not right. You would recognize that's not right. God gives us a class before he gives us a test. And sometimes the class is right here in scripture. And if you press into this right here in scripture, then he'll start to give you some, some, some classes in your life. He'll put you in a few situations whereby you have to make some difficult decisions. It's not, it's not really a big deal. It's not a big deal. 
sometimes it's like, hey, I know that last time, like you went by this homeless person, like you just didn't give, you didn't give, you see the same guy there all the time, but now I'm going to instruct your heart and I want you to give. I know it goes against everything you believe in. I know you believe that you're going to be propagating his homelessness and he's probably going to buy beer with the money or he's going to buy, I, I, I know what you're thinking, but here's, but I'm giving you a class right now. You have no time to worry about this homeless man. I'm trying to give you a class because there's a test that's coming. And the class is about love. Give to those who are in need, regardless of what you think about them. And then that comes to mind. Matthew 5, 6, 7, you've, you've got to read it, right? This is the class here. And, and you're at this red light and you're in a classroom because now he's teaching you. Or you get in an argument with, with, with your spouse or with a friend or something like that and you recognize that you're right. And you know that you could just be right and end this conversation because you have proof. But you're in a classroom. And you think that this is a big deal, but there's a real test that's coming. There's a real test that's coming where humility is going to be necessary for you to win. And if you stomp on this one and you win the argument with your friend or you just win it with your wife, you may win the conversation, but you didn't pay attention in the class and you will fail the test. There's always classroom instruction. Moment by moment, the greatest enemy for love is humility. Instructions on humility, I, I've, I have found humility, the lack of humility, pride, because pride, you know, pride. Pride is the issue. Pride comes before the fall. Pride happens in the fall. But the Lord says that with humility, that's, that's the only way that you're ever going to learn to, to love, and it's with humility. And so this is how the transformation happens. It says that you, you contemplate the Lord's glory. This, this is how transformation happens. You're saying, Denver, how can I love like this? How can we love like this? If you take me out for coffee sometime, I'll tell you all the stories upon stories upon stories of classes I've passed and classes I've failed and tests that I've passed and tests that I've failed. I've, 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 I've done both. Some of them have been serious and some of them not so much. But I started to recognize where I was on this trajectory and I realized that the Lord is teaching my heart to be humble. God doesn't want you to be right. He wants you to be humble. The primary thing that I, I believe that sometimes we think that God, God, is, God just wants to bless us. God wants you to be humble. More than anything, God wants you to be humble. Because you know what Jesus was like? He wants you to look like Jesus. He wants you to look like Jesus. Jesus walked in unprecedented humility. And that's how love started. Love started with this humble position. Though he was God, he didn't count himself as such. He humbled himself. And the cross was the greatest point of humiliation where he humbled himself. And humility is how you pay attention in class because God is inviting you into humility. Every single problem that we have is a love problem and you can hear him when your heart is humbled. A proud heart will never hear him. Your heart is already hardened if, if there's a proud heart. Transformation happens here. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 3 and, and 1 John tells us the same thing that if, if we contemplate his glory, that if we look at him, 
that if, if you just come face to face with, with Jesus and you contemplate him, so you're in scripture and you're not reading because you need more information to argue and to win fights or to tell me how much you know. That's not the purpose. You're reading scripture and you're taking in the character of God. You're, you're, you're just contemplating this Jesus and his character, right? You're seeing his character as, as, as you, and, and you spend time in prayer. You spend time in worship with him, seated on a throne. You spend face time with him, just, just in his presence with him. Not learning and studying theological arguments. Those will never get you anywhere. I'm, I'm talking about face-to-face. Those who are face-to-face with him, your face will start to look like him. This is one of those things that you just, you just do it or you don't. You just, there, is, there is no other way to be transformed. There, there is none. I, I would love to sprinkle dust on you and hope that you just walk out of here changed. You know, and, and God does some sovereign things. But the transformation all throughout scripture is you look at him. You, you, you stay all up in his face. And your face will start to look like his face. And, and, and you will start to love like he loves. That's the only way that you'll be able, that we will be able to take on this high call to love others the way that you have been loved. Says, the humble will see God. says, it's a place of humility. And this may answer the question as to why it's so hard for you to stay in prayer for more than five minutes. This, this might be the answer as to why is it that you can't just stay in the word and in the, in the presence of God for extended periods of time because the enemy knows that transformation comes when you stay in that place. Why, why do I get distracted during worship? Because if you spend too much face time with him, you're going to be transformed into his likeness. And we can't have that. So I'm going to keep you busy. I'm going to keep you distracted. And if I do enough of that, then you'll never be transformed. You might read some good articles and get some good advice and learn how to do things better, but you'll never be transformed. You may behave well, but you'll never be transformed. You you, you might make some good decisions, but you'll never be transformed. But we who contemplate his glory are being transformed into his likeness. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. If you didn't have it before, For we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face, now in part, and then fully, even as I am fully known. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, and the Lord is spirit. In 1 John 3.2. And all these have more than just a verse. It's, it, there's an entire context that's happening here. Dear friends, we are children of God and what we will be has not been made known. I don't know what I'm going to be. I don't know where this road is going to take me. I don't know where this life is going to lead. I don't know what I'm going to be as of yet, but, but this is what I do know. I do know that when Christ appears that I will be like him because I will see him as he is. I know that I'll be like him because I'll see him as he is. We hope you enjoyed this message from the Doral Vineyard Church by Denville Leafs. For more information, please visit us at doralvineyard.org.